You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's reading is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me, by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Free City. My name is Casey, and I'm one of uh, the pastors here. And before we get to the text, I want to update you on a little bit of our reopening plans. In in light of Governor Kelly's reopening plans for Kansas happening in stages, we are meeting with church leaders and school leaders to discuss what our reopening plans should and can look like. Please be patient and, and in prayer as we look toward the next several weeks. And in the midst of this, I pray that this finds you being encouraged right where you are. But, but the encouragement that I want you to find is found in theological awareness of what the scriptures say about your suffering because of the gospel. And I'm saying encouraged, not encouraged, not, not in denial of the situation around you. I mean, not to lie to yourself that it's not really as bad as you might have originally thought. Whatever you are experiencing, I'm not asking And God is not asking you for to bury your head in the sand and act like the reality is not real. Although many Christians do that, this is not Christianity. Jesus endured the cross with joy, but he was very aware of its horrors. So much so that in the garden he prayed for another way. Be encouraged, but don't be in denial. Be encouraged, but not in flattery. We often try to outweigh our realities by looking to past successes or or other present strengths. We want some things to determine our reality and worth, why other things should have no say on them. We do this, but, but does it really work? I mean, when you get dumped, we say things like, there are plenty of fish in the sea. And that is true. There are a lot of fish in the sea. But that doesn't change the fact that that one specific fish just dumped you. This doesn't really work. 
it makes you feel better in a moment because you're banking that there might be another fish out there that will like you. Statistically, the odds have got to be in your favor. But what if that's not true? What if none of the fish like you? When we face rejection or hardship or loss, is the reality that you are treasured by God, the theological reality that you are treasured by God. Does that have anything to say to your circumstances? So encourage, not in denial, not in flattery, and encourage not in distraction. We oftentimes try to look everywhere else to help everything else so we don't have to look within Ironically, this often leads to people in the help fields, like help fields that include even preaching and counseling. The lie is that if I can focus my attention to help you with your problems, maybe mine will go away. The problem is it doesn't work. Distraction is tempting, but reality still persists. It is always here when your gaze is pulled back. Like, I'm not trying to push a temporary encouragement that comes from denial, flattery, or destruction. I'm praying that you and I find Jesus aware and active in our present and real suffering. I think Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, is actually all about the reality of suffering. People suffer. Christians suffer when Romans 8:28 says for those who God loves for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to a purpose it means that all things will work for our good and for God's glory but it also means that all things can happen All things can happen to those whom Jesus loves deeply like Christians can experience joblessness Christians can experience depression and anxiety. Christians can lose loved ones, lose dreams, lose careers. Christians can lose their health. And yet God is at work in all of it. I think this text alludes to some of the incredible promises about what suffering is doing in the life of a believer and the dangers of what it can also do. And this is settled. It's subtle in this text. Matter of fact, as I was studying, a lot of commentators don't do a lot with verses 1 through 13. Like you might ask why, and why is because it's actually a rabbit trail that repeats many of the main ideas of what we gain in salvation that it is already talked about. It repeats a lot of the topics already covered in Ephesians 1 and 2, topics like truth, Uh, revealed through apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see that here in verse 5. Or that we are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers in the promise because of the gospel. We see that in verse 6. And those phrases we have heard over and over. So a lot of commentaries make brief comments about those things and point you back to earlier commentating. They say, go back and read back on this. And so it's not necessarily the topics that are unpacked here. But it's the reason for Paul's rabbit trail that is so important. It's always important, and maybe it's especially important in your life. 
If you look carefully, you'll see that Paul starts a thought in verse 1 when he says this, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then right after that, before verse 2, you see a dash. That dash changes the direction rather abruptly. The dash indicates a rabbit trail that was started after Paul mentioned his imprisonment. His imprisonment was a suffering for both himself and for his friends in the Ephesian church. When he brings up his imprisonment, he has to stop his train of thought to take a moment to address the topic of suffering. Paul's train of thought The prayer that's about to get picked up in verse 14 next week. That train of thought was derailed by the reality of suffering. You you can also see when he returns to this original idea in verse 14, when he repeats the introductory phrase, for this reason. He says that in verse 1, and then he says it again in verse 14, for this reason. For those of you who've been annoyed by my rabbit trails and sermons and conversations, like this text would say, you need to back off. Like, I stand with Paul in the Bible. I'm just trying to be biblical. So let me state it clearly. What caused Paul to run after the rabbit trail was the suffering produced by his imprisonment. His suffering demanded pastoral explanation before he went a moment further, and so does ours. In this rabbit trail, we we see many things. Of the many things I want to point out of these verses, ultimately, that it ultimately says that we serve a mighty God who makes even our sufferings produce glory. You can see that down in verse 13. But to organize our time, I want to unpack what this says about the gospel, number one. Number two, the church. And number three, our sufferings. If you look at the text, you'll see all of those words explicitly or strongly alluded to. So let's get started. Verse one, for this reason, I, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I already pointed out that this is Paul's imprisonment, his suffering that demand pastoral explanation, and that his initial thought doesn't get picked up until verse 14 again when he restates the phrase, for this reason I. We'll pick up on the theme of suffering at the end because there's a lot that this text says in verses 11, 12, and 13 about suffering. But I want you to hear this. Paul was loved by God. Paul was faithful to God. Paul was an apostle with a capital A, and Paul suffered. Suffering happens to those whom God loves. This is a mystery, but nothing compared to another mystery that this text speaks a lot about. So the first thing, the gospel we could say it like this. It says the ministry of the or the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is a mystery opening us to the rich promises of God through Jesus by revelation. Like, let me clarify that statement with three words that we see in verses two through nine. Gospel, mystery and revealed. And so we could ask the question, what is the gospel? And this text says the gospel is a mystery, a profound mystery of God's grace. Look at verse 2. It says, assuming 
that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul uses the word mystery to describe what the gospel is four times. Twice in these verses, one in verse 6 to come, and then once in verse 9. Like, he says the gospel is a mystery. But he means something different when he says mystery than what we usually think about. When we say mystery, we usually think of something that we must figure out by looking at the clues. We have to put it together. Verse 3 says that the gospel is a mystery that has been made known to us. Mystery books and movies, they unfold facts that you have to try to figure out who did it. If the movie or book is really good, it makes someone look really guilty. But then in the Scooby-Doo unmasking moment, when you find out who is really guilty, it's like you always could have seen it. It goes back and it makes perfect sense. I could ruin so many movies and books for you right now. I mean, have you seen The Sixth Sense? I could ruin it for you. Or or have you read Harry Potter? I could ruin it for you. You think you know who the bad guy is, but I won't. When we think of a mystery, we think of something we have to figure out with available clues. But when Paul says mystery, he thinks of something that we would never figure out unless someone reveals it to us. It is so foreign to us. We would never understand it. We would never think of it. It is so different. We would never understand the mystery of the gospel without revelation. The the Ten Commandments are so much easier for us to understand. God telling us what we should or shouldn't do. That is natural to us. That just seems to make sense. If I do good, I am loved. That is what every other religion says. There's no mystery to that. But the gospel, but being loved when you did nothing good. And furthermore, like that is a mystery. The gospel is a mystery that we would never dream up. It is countercultural, not to our culture, but to humanity itself. The gospel is a mystery. But what is the mystery? Like The mystery is that we are included into the rich promises of God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus' goodness has secured for us all the promises of God. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. This is saying something that, that is incredible. Like we've heard phrases because we had moms like guilty by association. That's easy for us to understand. We, we've heard phrases like nothing good happens after midnight. Or things like if we don't fix our faces, they might stick like that. Moms say stuff like that all the time. But this says something so different. This says that we are guilty, not guilty by association, but we are innocent by association. 
Not because of our goodness do we get in, but because of Jesus' goodness we get in. That is good news from God about how to be made right before God. That is saying, get with Jesus. Decide about Jesus and find yourself in all the promises of God, in all the pleasure of God. That is mysteriously different. The gospel is a mystery telling us that we can be included in the promises of God because of the work of Jesus. And you might even ask this question, how are we included? And I would say by responding to the revealed message of the gospel. Verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Did you see those words, given and gift? The gospel is a gift that is given, that you must receive when it is revealed to you. Verse 8, it goes on to say, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. It says given again. Once again, the gospel is given, and you must receive it when it is revealed to you. But this given grace was also, keep going, it says, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light everyone... What is plain in the mystery hidden for all the ages in God who created all things. Words that are there. First, preach. It means to tell. You don't know something until you're told. It says unsearchable riches. That means it's hard to find. It means bring to light. That means it's hidden in the dark. You can't just see it. And then mystery hidden for ages. That means it has to be revealed. The gospel says that you are included into the wonderful, saving promises of God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. It is a mystery to us. So different from everything else. And when it is revealed to you, you must receive it to have it. That is the gospel. That that is the message of the Bible. That that is how you are made right before God. We started off with the mysterious gospel of grace. It is so countercultural that it's described as just a mystery. Something that you would never dream up. Something that you're not going to find on your own. Something that you're not going to figure out. But it has now been revealed. And in the revelation, we must respond. First, the mysterious gospel of grace. Second, this this text talks a lot about the church. The gospel of grace is on display in the church for all to witness. Like, Like look at verse 10. It says, so that through the church, that's where we see it, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like, first off, I I said that this was on display to many, many witnesses, but it's not just people witnesses. It says authorities in the heavenly places. Like, I want to say three things about this. Like, the first thing I want to say is the manifold wisdom and grace of God is on display in the church. I want to say that this, it also has something for every situation that life can bring. And then thirdly, I want to say, and it is so marvelous. That the angels long to look into it. And and so first, the manifold wisdom and grace of God is on display in the church. And you have to be honest about this. 
If you think about this plan that God was placing his wisdom and grace to be on display in the church, you have to admit that it's kind of a crazy idea. Like counting on the church to display the wisdom and grace of God is a little bit crazy. The church is not always a great example of this. It has lots of problems. The church has lots of problems. Like, do I need to point them out? Like right now, we're connected on Zoom, and someone always tries to do it in their car or on a walk without muting themselves. Like, it's a problem. Like, before this pandemic is over, we have got to figure out Zoom etiquette. But, but it's not just online. I mean, we see it other places online where the church doesn't display grace toward lost people and is demanding and can show self-righteousness. Also where the church is cowardly and doesn't speak against things. Like we see errors on all sides on all line. But it's also in person. Like we get our feelings hurt by being overly sensitive. We hurt others with gossip. We fail to follow through, think about others, or to be generous like we should. We get mad when someone sits in our normal seats and when the coffee runs out, even though we're like 25 minutes late. The church has problems. It's leaders. I mean, it's leaders lie, cheat, and fail. They have abused and bullied. We, we fail to pray, and then we fail to act, oftentimes behind the phrase of, let me pray about that. It's a little perplexing to see that Paul says that it is through the church that God wants to reveal his beauty and glorious wisdom and grace. But it's not just us. Certainly, we have lots of problems, but when he said it, the church had lots of problems. We have lots of problems, but the church has always, it always has had lots of problems. Paul is not writing this in ignorance. He knew that the church had problems. He wrote First and Second Corinthians. They, they were messing up spiritual gifts, communion, lawsuits. Uh, they had sex problems. They had questions about marriage and divorce. They were celebrating sin and living in rivalry. They were a mess. And, and Paul knew it. And he says that God is displaying his wisdom and grace in the church despite its problems. Despite our problems. And it is not just on display for humanity to witness. This says that rulers and authorities in heavenly places, like it, they, they witness what is going on in the church. God is so excited to put it on display in his church. Matter of fact, we read about this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12, it says, Concerning this salvation, like the, the gospel that is now at work on display within the church. That's what he means. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequential glories. This is saying that the prophets had this vision from God. They were able to see into the future and see the suffering of Jesus. And maybe they understood some of it. They probably didn't understand a lot of it. But they certainly didn't get to witness it. Verse 12, it goes on. It says, And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They did it so that you could understand it when you saw it. When the gospel was revealed in the person of Jesus for you through preaching that you could understand. And then it says this phrase, these things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look. They, they, they love to look into it. They, they're, they're captivated by it. They can't get enough of it. They look at what God has done through Jesus and what he's doing for sinful people and what he's building inside of the church. And they are astonished. They look and they look again. They are like a kid who's memorized, mesmerized. It keeps saying, Dad, do it again. Do it again. 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 And listen, if the angels who see God in the throne room are blown away, shouldn't, shouldn't we be also? Like when we look at what the, the gospel really is, that when we actually see it, that this God of the universe, this holy God stepped down to touch my life, cares about my struggles, is providing me a way home at infinite cost to Jesus. Are, are we bored with that? When was the last time like that reality moved you to tears, like looking into the gospel blew you away? I'm, I'm afraid that we take it flippantly. And yet the angels who have a better vision, they just have to keep looking like they can't even see all of it. And yet sometimes we think we fully understand it. And I think this is telling us that if you think you fully understand it, you don't have it at all. But if it blows you away and there's part of it you just don't get, like why God would step down and enter in and how that affects all of my life, how that affects the way I see the world and the way I treat others and the way I see myself, how that affects how I think about my work, how that affects my family interactions, how that, I, that affects how I accept my limitations, how that affects suffering. Like when those things start to come together and it, you're kind of bewildered, that's when you're just now starting to get it and you need to look in again. The angels long to look. But this also says that the manifold wisdom and grace of God, it means that there is a providence and a grace of God that will match any and all situation of life. The word used to describe wisdom is manifold. Manifold is translated from the Greek word pulupoikilos. Pulupoikilos. It means many, many colored or many, many shaped. And so Paul uses this word to describe the vast applications of God's wisdom and grace that can be found in the church. Do you know how many shades of suffering life can produce? Loneliness, rejection, failure, loss, abandonment, uncertainty. The list could go on and on. But this is saying that the multicolored grace of God the promise is of God's grace. It is many, many colored. And that means that there is a shade of God's grace to match any of your specific sufferings. 
There is nothing in you that the grace of God can't match and touch and resurrect. And that is on display in the church. First, the mystery of the gospel revealed. Second, it's displayed in the church. And now our final point, our suffering. Our suffering is held in the eternal purpose of God. We see this in verse 1 and then verses 11 through 13. The whole reason for this rabbit trail was the reality of Paul's suffering and the effect that it was having on his friends. But Paul wants them to know, he wants you to know, that the gospel gets you into some unbelievable promises about your suffering. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then we have all the talk about what's happening in the mysterious gospel and how that's a mystery revealed. And then we have all the talk about how that's on display in the church. And then we come back to the original thought of this suffering. And so verse 11, it says this, which he means my imprisonment, my suffering. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Like I think this says so many things, but I think we can draw at least three things from this that, that speaks to our suffering. And so one thing that we can draw is no suffering really owns you. And then we can look at no suffering is ever for nothing. And then the final thing we see at the end, and suffering will end in glory. So, so the first, no suffering can really own you. In verse 1, Paul doesn't say a prisoner of Rome. He says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Like Paul sees his suffering, he sees his imprisonment, and he is confident that he will not be held one second longer than the dictated will of Jesus. He looks at his suffering and he says, you aren't in charge. You don't own me. You don't get to define who I am or the limitations of my life. Jesus is in charge of my life and nothing can come to me that he hasn't let come to me. And I trust in his goodness. The whole point of this rabbit trail was because he wanted to encourage the Ephesians. He wanted to encourage his friends because his suffering was doing something to them. Look at verse 13. It says, so I ask you not to lose heart over why I am suffering. His suffering was starting to steal from their faith. It was starting to dictate what they believed. And if it dictates what they believe, then it will dictate how they live. If something controls your belief and has ownership on your belief, what you really believe to be true, especially what you really believe to be true about God, what you really believe to be true about you and how he feels about you or what he thinks about you, it will start to control your actions. And if something controls your belief and your action, it has total control on you. And Paul says, this can't be so. I am here because Jesus has something to accomplish here, in me right here. And as soon as his eternal purposes are done, this prison has no hold on me. Don't lose faith. 
Christian, no suffering can ever own you. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus, if you believe that Jesus was good, that your present situation was for your good and his glory, how might you see your day to day differently? If you are a Christian, your suffering can't own you. It does not have the final word. But the second thing, no suffering is for nothing. We, we see this in, in verse 1 and verse 10 where he says that his suffering is on behalf of the Gentiles. And then in verse 10, he says it more plainly. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul clearly connects his suffering with the benefit of others. Could, could that be true about our suffering? Like, like what if... Your suffering is benefiting others in profound ways. Like if we think about Paul's life, this is very evident. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. The suffering being addressed is Paul's imprisonment. With absolute certainty, Paul's imprisonment produced a lot for other Christians. We know that, that Paul was under house arrest in Rome. This means that he could receive guests and he could write letters. And we see that in many of his letters when he asked for people to bring him something and to send someone else to encourage him. And so-and-so you know, delivers this letter, so bring, you know, welcome him in. During this imprisonment, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. How many people do you think those writings have blessed and strengthened their faith? If he wouldn't have been in prison, he might have never gotten around to it. He might have been busy traveling and preaching. He might have never made time to write it down and that it might be put in the canon so that it would bless us 2,000 years later. I know being quarantined can be lame from time to time. But I've also noticed a lot of things around my neighborhood. I've never seen so many happy dogs my neighborhood has far more dogs than I ever realized. It, it is either that or people are like borrowing dogs to walk. I, I've never seen so many yards flourishing. Everybody is out planting and fertilizing and looking at their yard. I mean, I've never seen yards look so good. I've never seen so many people in their front yard. You know, in our church, I know of at least three pregnancies in our church, and I expect more to come. I've never seen so many families on walks. I've never seen so many dads playing catch with their kids in the front yard. I've also never heard so many people just in my city group praying for their lost friends or neighbors like I have in the last four to six weeks. Paul's suffering stopped him from doing what he wanted, and yet it yielded an incredible harvest of life that extended well beyond his earthly death. Dads, what if the time that you are giving your son with a ball is changing the world beyond, beyond your death in ways you can't even comprehend? Christian, what if your prayers, your words, and even your suffering in this present moment is Casting a vision of the goodness and hope that comes from the gospel that is saving souls. Because that is exactly what Paul's imprisonment did. Paul's imprisonment made time that he might not have spent to write this down. And it has blessed so many. 
The second thing I think about when I think about, you know, no suffering is nothing in the life of Paul. I also think about Paul's chains. Paul's chains are not listed here, but they are very present as he's writing this. He was chained to a Praetorian guard as he penned this letter. Paul mentions his change a lot. He does so in Ephesians 6, verse 20, uh, Colossians 4, 18, 2 Timothy 1, 16, and 2, 9. And it is really expanded on uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 26. Paul's chains become a famous symbol of God accomplishing his good works through suffering. He would say at times, remember my chains. The brothers are being emboldened by my chains. Like In the letter to Philippians, Paul mentions that his imprisonment and his change were causing the whole Praetorian Guard, the household of Caesar, to hear about Jesus. I mean, talk, talk about not having a chance. You have the guy who speaks more about the providence and foreknowledge of God, God working everything to accomplish his purposes than anyone else in the New Testament chained to a lost soul. Why he is receiving guests with news about the church and why he is writing the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and he's writing the Philemon letter. Can you imagine? Like these guards chained to interact, kind of like you would talk about a mini series of what's happening and how it's unfolding. Like it's almost like you would say, well, Bill, I mean, since you're going to be chained with me for another eight hours, let's just pick up where we left off. Penal substitutionary atonement. What are your thoughts? Because I have more than a few. His on lockdown, chained up prisoner evangelism was so effective that the household of Caesar was giving their life to Christ. They get mentioned in his letter. He even includes them in his farewell address in Philippians 4. Like, just picture Paul talking it out with his guards like we might a miniseries. Like, like, are you serious? Udia and Syntyche, they're still fighting? Give, give me the pen. Hey, Udia, Syntyche, get along. And everyone else, Praetorian guard Bill says hi, and I'm praying for you. His chains a symbol of his suffering, a real reality of his suffering. It wasn't for nothing. It it was yielding a harvest, not just beyond what he could touch or beyond what his voice could reach. It was yielding a, a harvest beyond his earthly life. This reminds us no suffering can own you. And no suffering is for nothing. And then suffering will end in glory. In verse 13 it says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul was so confident that his present suffering was for future glory in his life and the life of his friend. Paul actually ties suffering and glory together often in his writing. One place is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. There it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Look at that. There is no denial about what is going on. He is not saying, I know it looks like my body is wasting away, but it's actually really not. It's really much better than it looks. He is not saying that at all. 
He doesn't, he, he doesn't not look. He actually looks deeper. He says, we are being afflicted. But if you could see what was happening on the inside of me, you would see strength and faith growing. If you could see the change that was on the inside, on the outside, we are dwindling. On the inside, we are growing. It goes on. Look at verse 17 and 18. And this is where it connects suffering and glory. It says in verse 17, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul was just certain that it would be worth it. You know, I used to read this really focusing just on the end where it says the things that are seen are are transient, meaning they're not going to last forever. The things that are unseen are eternal, meaning they will last forever. And so that definitely means that in suffering, something is being shaped in my heart and in my soul that is fit for eternity. And God has to accomplish that in me. But it's saying more than that. I used to kind of just read this and say, you know, Paul puts all the suffering of his life on one side and at times he mentions all the suffering and it is great. But then on the other side of the scale, he puts the eternal glory that was coming and then the scale tipped instantly. He said, see, it's worth it. Focus on the long game. But that's not all that he's saying here. Verse 17, it says that our afflictions are preparing for us glory. I don't know what all of that means, but it's more than making an observation that eternity will be worth more. It's preparing, yielding, giving birth, acquiring this pain, grief, suffering, longing, loneliness is resurrecting some glory in our lives. And it is already starting inside of me and it will fully come out one day. He is saying it is worth it. He's saying all suffering will end in glory. And you might ask, how can he be so sure of that? How can he be so sure that that it's going to end in glory when I, I don't have that assurance? I'm not always sure. Sometimes my depression feels too heavy. Sometimes like my soul is freaking out. This joblessness or this anxiety, it feels deeper. How can you be sure? How can Paul be sure that it will be resurrected to glory, greater weight, greater material, that it will be give way to something more glorious? I think it's because he saw what God did with Jesus on the cross. He witnessed what God did with the cross of Jesus. All of that suffering, and there was suffering. All of that loss, and there was loss. All of that doubt, and there was doubt, was raised to beauty. Think about that. He was captured 
by the gospel. Like the angels who longed to look into it, when he had doubt, he looked deeper into what Jesus did. He looked deeper into the life of Jesus, what Jesus taught. He looked deeper into the suffering of Jesus and that Jesus willingly gave himself to that suffering to be resurrected, to be the first among many to step into glory so that we could have the promises of God. And those promises are much more than this, but they certainly include these promises. They certainly include that no suffering can own you because of Jesus. They certainly include that no suffering is for nothing because of Jesus. And they certainly include that suffering will end in glory because of Jesus. Paul was sure because he took time to really look at the good news of what Jesus has done. Jesus stepped out of the heavens and he stepped into humanity and he suffered all the same things that we suffered. He experienced doubt and pain and betrayal and loneliness. He experienced uncertainty and yet he did it with perfect faith, accomplishing what we could never accomplish. And then he went to the cross and on the cross, The wrath of God came upon Jesus. Jesus, the only perfect person, the only person to experience, to have perfect faith and perfect obedience, lost the presence of God so you could be ushered in. I I just want to ask, if God did that with the cross, if God did that with Paul's chains, What could he do with whatever your suffering is right now? One day we might celebrate the COVID-19 lockdown because of all the life that it yielded. Because of the work of Jesus in the midst of suffering. Pray with me. Jesus, don't make us a people. Don't let us be a people that put our head in the sand like suffering is not real. Jesus, expand our humanity to be greater than what it is. Like expand it that we can feel sadness or hurt on a deeper level, but we can be absolutely confident that the multi, that the manifold presence of your spirit, the manifold wisdom and grace that is alive and active in the church because of the gospel, there is a shade of grace for my suffering. There is no suffering that I have that is outside of your reach. Lord, help us believe that. Help us display that. Grow an inner hope inside of us that is growing, though outwardly we might waste away. It is growing. Jesus, don't let us waste this suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City, I love you more than you know, and I eagerly anticipate that coming Sunday morning when we will gather together again and praise Jesus with our collective voice. Even now, Jesus is good. Even now, and maybe especially now, the church is alive and at work because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free city, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll see you soon.